Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Mirren Gidda. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. Okay, Josh, so quick question for you, because I know how much you love questions. Um, can you tell me which country was more involved in the US election than any other? Well, I guess if you're looking at the coverage of the election, it has to be Russia. That kind of was the global story, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Com- completely correct. And, um, you know, we saw throughout the election, right, that Russia was, it seemed like Russia was meddling in, in ways that was just kind of unprecedented. You know, from the leak of the DNC emails to John Podesta's email leaks, it very much seemed like Moscow was trying to, to disparage uh, the Democratic Party. Yeah, this is the allegation that was running throughout the campaign, and it kind of hasn't stopped now. You've got reports out today uh, of alleged contact between officials from the Trump campaign and Russia during the campaign. You've just had Michael Flynn, who regular listeners will remember we discussed in an earlier podcast. He was the national security advisor. Um, He's just resigned because he had contact with Russian officials before the inauguration. So it's kind of important to have a look at not only what the relationship between Trump and Russia and Putin might be, but also what Putin's policies are, what Russia looks for in the world, so that we can kind of examine how Trump's policies might change to fit it. And it very much seems like Putin is trying to expand his influence all over the world. You know, we've seen him encroach into East Ukraine, but also he's really begun to establish his dominance in the Middle East. And it's it's interesting because, you know, this was a region where the US was once sort of the dominant global superpower. And now it's it's sort of been elbowed out the way um, in favor of Moscow. You know, we've seen that Russia has forged better relations with Turkey. It's obviously involved with Syria. It's even developed a relationship with Israel. So it seems like for, for Putin, you know, the Middle East is his new almost place. So it's timely, basically, that we've got uh, a couple of reporters in with us this week to talk about our cover uh, story from the print edition, which is about exactly what Putin wants in the Middle East, what he's doing there, why he's meddling. And we kind of also wanted to get out of them a bit uh, how Trump's policy towards the Middle East might change compared to previous presidents who were a bit more Russia sceptic. So that's probably kind of enough from us, I think. Um, Let's let our guests introduce Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Themselves. Hi, my name's Jack Moore, and I am Newsweek's Middle East reporter. Hi, I'm Damien Sharkov. I report for Newsweek on Russia and Eastern Europe. Thanks so much for both of you uh, for coming in. And just to start with, for anyone who hasn't yet read your uh, excellent piece, which is available in all good news agents in Newsweek this week, um, if you could just tell us basically, you know, what's what's going on here? What have you chosen to write about? What is Putin up to in the Middle East? Um, what we chose to write about is what we saw as a concentrated effort by Russia to reach out to sometimes embattled leaders in several countries in the Middle East and uh, support them diplomatically, militarily, uh, depending on uh, what they need. Uh, It started with Syria, most directly. But we've seen Russia reaching out to a country like Iran, which I'm sure Jack would be able to explain the predicament that Iran was in, but lacked international friends um, for a long time. Or even U.S. allies, uh, you have Russia reaching out to Israel and uh, making friendly overtures to Turkey. Um, And that is what we tried to analyze. We tried to pretty much answer that question, what is Putin up to in the Middle East? And Russia has now become the most influential, has been in the Middle East since the height of the Cold War, essentially, Um, reaching out to traditional US allies like Turkey, Egypt, Israel, and now even reaching out to Libya after the Arab Spring and the fall of dictators. After 9-11, the Middle East is a very different place. So no Mubarak anymore, no Gaddafi, no Ben Ali in Tunisia. Um, So Russia sees a gap here to prop up strongmen in the Middle East in the face of Islamism and extremism and the threat that it may face back home, but also it can boost its interests abroad. It's kind of amazing because it sounds like Russia is all across the Middle East, you know, Middle East and North Africa, because you, you know, you've mentioned Tunisia and, and, and Libya as well. I, I, I'm, I'm a simple person of simple taste. So can you give us, you know, the top three countries that, that Russia's involved with? And when I say top three, as in how it's going to sort of impact on the West as well, what are, what are the three big ones? The three big ones, the first definitely would be Syria. Yeah, um, it's a major stakeholder in Syria in a military way now. Definitely, and, and you see Russia now uh, sponsoring peace talks in Astana, Uh, the Kazakh capital with Turkey and actually becoming the major power overseeing the resolution of the conflict if we are to see one. The second would probably be Turkey. If you look at Turkish cooperation now with Russia, last month uh, the two countries held their first airstrikes against ISIS. Now if you said that a year and a half ago, you would have been laughed out of the room because Turkey shot down a Russian jet and their relations fell to new lows. But now they're working together on resolving the conflict diplomatically 
but also trying to beat terrorism together without any U.S. involvement, sidelining the U.S. effectively. And Turkey is a historic U.S. ally and NATO ally, something that Trump will have to think about moving forward. Mm-hmm. And the third one? Probably, I think, would we say Iran? We did discuss this while we were reporting. Um, and because the approaches are very different with every state, it's difficult to put them in a linear way. But Russia is becoming a partner to Iran in a way that, of course, the uh, U.S. Um, hasn't been, but also uh, that really a, a nuclear power hasn't been with Iran. Yeah, what, what was the situation in Iran? Why did they see some uh, an opportunity to step in So Iran traditionally opposes Western interests and involvement in the Middle East, and Russia opposes the US as well. And so at the United Nations Security Council, over sanctions and the nuclear program, Russia's traditionally given given Iran more support than the US. But in Syria, what Iran really gives Russia is ground troops working with Hezbollah against Sunni rebels, and it basically allows Moscow not to put boots on the ground substantially. In Syria, you'll see Russian military advisors mainly, but not a huge amount of ground troops fighting the battles. It's Iranian troops, Shia militias, and this is what Iran provides Russia. And it's basically a pragmatic relationship. It's not something that is cultural. It's not something, they're not two countries that have historic ties. It is a pragmatic relationship based on, we can offer you this, and you can offer us this. And I mean, the the big question is, uh, for me, at least, you know, why is this happening? Because it must be exhausting financially and mentally for Russia to be stretched across so many different fronts, you know, in in the Middle East. So why is it expanding? Is it basically, you know, we've already seen Russia sort of flexing its muscles in in East Ukraine. Is it it something similar that's happening in the Middle East? Or is there another reason behind all of this? I think it's uh, it's difficult to, um, and sometimes it can be very simplistic to um, conflate the way that Russia uh, behaves in its neighborhood and in the former Soviet space uh, to what it's doing in the Middle East because, put simply, the Middle East is much more complex for Russia. It doesn't know the ground as well. One thing that Dmitry Trenin, who's the director of uh, Moscow's Carnegie Center, said, which I thought was quite interesting, was that we, we can trace this, uh, this idea that uh, Vladimir Putin had about uh, a potential intervention in Syria and, and a wider a new engagement of uh, Russia in post-Soviet times with the Middle East to uh, something Barack Obama said about Russia in 2014. In condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine, uh, Obama dismissed Russia as just a regional power. It was really uh, desperately clinging to its status and um, essentially exporting aggression to its neighbors, um, which was a sign of its weakness, uh, is what Obama said, not strength. And uh, according to Trenin, nothing could have really insulted Russia more um, because there was this project of um, redressing Russia as once again a global power, just as in Soviet times. So we can view all of these maneuvers, which are very different in the Middle East. They do seem to have a, a streak that unites them that it all falls into the family of that school of thinking. Russia becoming a global power once again and wearing the badge that global powers do. So is it, I mean, is this really then (laughs) Obama's fault? I mean, is it basically that Putin got his feelings hurt and has now just sort of dived headfirst into the Middle East? Because that sounds crazy. The horse photos didn't work. uh, So he put his shirt back on (laughs) and went to the Middle East. And rolled his sleeves up. Yeah. 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 Well, in many ways, under under Obama, the U.S. did disengage from the Middle East. So in that sense, 
there is, I, I'm not sure whether we would say culpability, but th there is a direct correlation between Russia viewing um, these U.S. homilies to the, the Middle East during the Arab Spring in 2011, encouraging what the U.S. hoped would be democracy, seeing it as hypocritical, seeing it as cynical, and seeing it as uh, ultimately the reason for what we've seen happen, which is the spread of Islamism um, across northern Africa and throughout Syria. And I th Russia is existentially fearful of that. In the 1990s, Russia had a very violent insurgency on its own territory. And it is partially afraid of uh, Russians returning home and uh, essentially recontinuing that jihad because as the FSB, the Russian security services said, there are over, I believe, 2,500 Russians currently in ISIS. This was before the Russian operation began in 2015 in Syria. But according to them, the effort that they've put into this military intervention is to prevent these people from coming home. And it is a Russian security issue as, as much as it is also a Russian uh, notion of becoming a great power again. And you, you mentioned um, earlier that the US has sort of withdrawn from the Middle East. And I wanted to ask Jack, you know, you to help me out with this as our resident Middle East expert. Um, you know, what happened? Because at one point, the US was all over the Middle East. You know, it was involved in Libya, it was involved in Iraq. It, I mean, it signed the nuclear deal with Iran. So, I mean, because your piece kind of mentions this, that there have been uh, almost like cycles, right, where Russia was sort of more influential in the Middle East. That was when it was the Soviet Union, and then it was the US for a bit. Why did the US sort of withdraw from the Middle East? So the US was pretty much unchallenged in the Middle East for two decades in the 90s and the noughties. Um, but after the Iraq and the Afghan invasions, public opinion for strong Middle Eastern involvement for the US just withered away, um, as we saw in 2011 when the US withdrew from Iraq. But as some diplomats have argued to me, actually, you know, the US has not receded as much as people think. It's given Israel a record military aid deal. It's still operated in Iraq and Syria. But what the actual problem is for the US is that the problems are just so intractable now. They're just so big. So in Syria, the interests of Russia, Turkey, they're at stake. For Iran, they're at stake. So it's just involved so many more players that has not allowed the US to really become heavily involved in the Syrian conflict as much as it would like. I think we should stress one thing when we're talking about Russian yeah. and US involvement in the Middle East, and that's that uh, the, Russia is not really supplanting the US. Right. Uh, it is, in a sense, trying to fill a void that it sees uh, as an opportunity in, in the US retreating. But Russia is not becoming a kind of security guarantor in the way that the U.S. was. What we're seeing Russia do is effectively go uh, and engage with uh, an, in fractured regimes where you have strongman leaders that President Obama would be unwilling to support because they don't aspire to things like democracy. Russia doesn't seem to have a problem with that. So that's interesting then, because I, in terms of the public opinion back at home, you know, I remember covering the Chilcot report, um, which was uh, into Tony Blair's involvement in Iraq. Um, and uh, in America, there were similar reports. And this idea of kind of American uh, presidents, when they intervene in other countries, get held to a very kind of high moral standard. Um, this idea that they're, what they're doing has to create real happy democracies. And if it does anything short of that, then, uh, you know, the public will hit them for it. Whereas in Russia, you're saying that they're kind of happy to see them prop up dictators almost. A little bit. And if we're talking about uh, opinion domestically, uh, Russians tend to, they live in an information society which is very dominated by state outlets. 
if we look at polls, whether we're looking at um, pollsters that are partially state-funded or someplace like the Levada Center, which is independent, we see that um, terrorism is a prime concern. And it actually did increase um, among Russians. Uh, well, it, it didn't increase, but um, among Russians, uh, the, the degree of, of worry they had for terrorism increased with uh, the Syria campaign uh, beginning in, in 2015. And as far as they're concerned, this notion of terrorism and the fact that Russia is fighting it is a, a, a very natural dynamic. You don't need to fill in the blanks with too many videos of Jihadi John or someone like that. Um, and the concerns for human rights are less so. Certainly, yeah. Repression is something that is less of a concern in, in Russia. Russia doesn't see itself, and this is what its politicians are saying, which doesn't seem to be too unpopular. Russia doesn't see itself as a power that's um, exporting a system of democracy or a system of even government, which is, of course, not necessarily true because in backing up authoritarian regimes, you are you are doing that. But Russia certainly sees itself as not an ideological power. It is just there to provide law, order, and in many cases domestically, this is what polls indicate that Russians want at home, so they don't see too much wrong with that. And someone else who's sometimes called a strongman is is Donald Trump, who's now come to power in America and is maybe going to lead American foreign policy down quite a different route. Um, we know that he's expressed some kind of admiration for Putin in the past. We've done whole podcasts on it, which you should definitely listen to. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he also has, I guess, in a similar way, his, his emphasis in foreign policy rhetoric is on fighting kind of lawlessness and radical Islam um, and less on building sort of stable democracies. Um, and back home, in fact, he called himself the law and order candidate. So it's it's all a similar kind of ethos. Do we think like looking at what Putin is doing in the Middle East, we might end up seeing Trump adopt similar-ish models or helping Putin in certain ways that previous American presidents wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have gone for? We don't really know is, is uh, the answer. Uh, and that was the answer that we've been getting from a lot of former diplomats and um, members of parliament in, in Russia in both houses, because we don't really know where Donald Trump stands on all of this. He has uh, tweeted certain things. That's true. Um, but if you look at his cabinet picks, for example, you have someone like Mike Pompeo, who during his confirmation as CIA director, he said that Russia had done nothing to fight ISIS, which is something that Trump had not said. Now he's head of the CIA. You've had people like um, Rex Tillerson uh, espouse certain views about Russia, and, and he's secretary of state, by the way, right now, I should mention. Um, and James Mattis, who's defense secretary. Mad dog. Yeah. And then uh, Tillerson goes and says that up until his confirmation, he hasn't actually had a long conversation with Trump about Russia. So we just don't know, uh, which is which is an annoying thing to really say when we're supposed to be reporting facts to people. But this is what uh, decision makers and experts are also saying. Trump's Middle Eastern policy is completely unknown right now. But what it does point to at the moment is focusing primarily on the fight against the Islamic State. And that's where he will most likely cooperate with Putin. In his third presidential debate with Hillary Clinton, he said, you know, Assad is killing ISIS, Iran is killing ISIS. I don't like them, but they're killing ISIS. So he's indicated that he's willing to work with the bad people of the Middle East in the West Sides to defeat ISIS and extremism. So that's where we could see uh, Trump cooperate with Putin. But an analyst have also spoken to me and said, uh, Russia's growing influence means that Trump could work with Russia on other issues. So, for example, uh, Russia has inserted itself into the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. 
So is offered to host Abbas and Netanyahu in Moscow. And this is a traditional US backyard policy. And it's it comes with big prestige, the peace process. So for Russia to get involved there means that it could be involved in a future effort uh, that might involve Egypt. Egypt has you know, ties with the Palestinians, the Arab world, but Russia and Trump could work there together as well, but mainly ISIS, I would say. But this is the thing. I mean, Putin is, you know, engaged in his own fight against ISIS and in, in Syria, and it's really against ISIS and, you know, Assad's enemies in general, and yeah. he's been accused of war crimes, and it's all, quite frankly, a bloody mess, and I use the term bloody literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, even if Donald Trump says to him, hey, I want to get involved, do you need some fighter jets? Surely, I, I assume that's how dim- diplomacy works, <laughs> I, I really have no idea. But, it's a great um, Donald Trump impression. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, but, I mean, presumably Putin won't want Donald Trump to get involved, because he wants, as you say, Jack, the the prestige. I mean, I can't see why he would sort of tolerate America helping him out because Putin's been able to establish himself as a key player within Syria. You know, he was the guy who famously got Assad to get rid of some of his chemical weapons, right? Do we really think these two men are going to be able to work together? We started talking about prestige now, which I think is really important because after all, the story is about Russia effectively denting uh, U.S. prestige in the Middle East. And U.S. prestige and U.S. exceptionalism is about the idea that the U.S. is a, uh, a power for strong institutions and democracy, and uh, that's those are values that are in some way universal. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, this is what U.S. exceptionalism is about. Um, and this prestige has been dented by Russia is because Russia is propping up these authoritarian leaders, and if they prove to be successful, which so far many of them are proving to be successful against extremist groups, this makes the U.S. political export towards the Middle East, supposedly democracy, look unappealing. In the same way, Putin would gain a lot of prestige by getting uh, the U.S. to renege on this idea of exceptionalism. Putin would, by potentially working with Donald Trump in the Middle East, uh, whether in Syria or in some, some other way, Putin would be able to say, uh, to his electorate at, at home, essentially, we have made Russia great again because we, we're making what he concedes is the main superpower in the world work with us, work on our terms and support our allies like Bashar al-Assad or our partners, which is a word that Putin uses very liberally, but it essentially means that he's willing to like you at some point. Yeah, and Trump's potential isolationism also risks burning bridges with key allies in the Middle East and actually allowing Russia to continue to grow. So the travel ban, for example, including Iraq on the travel ban has alienated Iraqis immensely. Uh, Many feel like they are betrayed and the Iraqis are key allies against ISIS. I mean, they're in the middle of a battle for Mosul. If the relationship there is damaged, for example, who's going to fill the void in helping Iraq defeat ISIS? Is it going to be Iran, who already have a stake in Iraq, it's a Shia-led government, and actually helped Iraq retake Tikrit from ISIS? Or is it also going to be Russia, who's partner with Iran? So Trump needs to be careful that he's actually going to allow Russia to boost its influence in the Middle East, with NATO as well, calling NATO obsolete. I know he's backtracked on that, but the key link between Washington and Ankara is that they're NATO allies. So calling NATO obsolete also risks burning a bridge with Ankara at a time when relations also aren't great between the two, when he, the US is harboring Gulen, um, the man that they think is behind the coup. And what about uh, other, any other parts of the world? You know, at the moment we've talked about this almost like, uh, in fact, to, to give the example of our cover image for this episode, we've got sort of like a chessboard in the Middle East with sure. Trump on one side and Putin mm. on the other. Brilliant uh, 
drawing by by our producer over there, Jordan, who's smiling at me. So but good. but is that accurate, or is this going to drag in other players into the chess game? Are, are other people going to get sucked into this maelstrom, or is it going to move beyond the Middle East in some way, or is this something that is very much between these two men and how they how, how they make their next moves? I personally think that it is going to be limited to the Middle East. Um, speaking to ambassadors, they believe that Russia, because of the sanctions in Eastern Europe, over their involvement in Eastern Europe in Ukraine and Crimea, um, Russia is looking to develop a second front, and that second front is the Middle East. So it's all about leverage. If we can be involved in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, then maybe if you want us to take a step back, we want something in return. If we're going to support Iran, if you don't want us to support Iran anymore, we need something in return. So it's all about leverage in the Middle East. And I think that this is the US's big backyard, and I keep using the word, and to challenge the US there, the Middle East is of primary importance. I don't see Asia being as important as the Middle East or South America. Obviously, Putin's involvement in, in the Middle East, I mean, there is some reason to worry about it. I mean, as I said earlier, like the fact that he's been accused of um, bombing civilians, well, not him personally, but his jets have been accused of bombing civilians in Syria. He hasn't been really a peacemaker in the region. It, it kind of asks the question, can Putin be stopped? Is, is there anything that can be done to limit what he's doing in the Middle East? And and also, does he need to be stopped? Is it is is it really that bad? I mean, is it better that the West does sort of bow out and say, you deal with it? Uh, that is pretty much the debate that's being had in legislatures across Europe. And to some extent on Donald Trump's Twitter feed, a reason that we do need to uh, certainly take note and potentially uh, worry about Russia's maneuvers in the Middle East is that uh, they do seem to have a transactional value. Um, as Jack said uh, increased Russian leverage in the Middle East could bring value to Russia's hand on other tables. I mean, Donald Trump has himself said that he's going to try and maybe strike uh, deals in certain policies, in certain policy areas that don't necessarily relate to other ones, but somehow make them um, relate to one another. He's at this point debated lifting sanctions on Russia imposed because of uh, intervention in Ukraine, either as part of the Syria peace process or uh, as part of some uh, nuclear deal. So if we do have a new approach towards Russia, from the West in uh, effectively bartering for influence in the Middle East, then Russia's influence in the Middle East becomes directly relevant to U.S. global prestige, potentially the U.S.'s relationship with its European allies. How he can be stopped is is very tricky to say, really. For Putin to be stopped somewhat, um, Washington will have to become an attractive proposition again for Middle Eastern leaders. Mm. And to do that, Washington and Trump have to be more pragmatic in their dealings with Middle Eastern leaders and have to have, unfortunately, for human rights defenders, less concern about human rights and have to find common areas to work with Middle Eastern leaders if they're going to pull them back away from Moscow who do not lecture on human rights and who are all about stability. So I think we'll see Trump taking that line a lot more. And what we'll see now is... Okay, the US could hamper Russia's growth in the Middle East, but countries in the Middle East will have to start dealing with both Moscow and Washington now. It'll be a case of not dealing with one or the other, but cooperating with both. 
So I think that's about all we've got time for. I know Damien looks like he's got something else to say, but I'm going to force him to stop. That's that's it. So um, thank you both so much for coming in. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. Um, thanks to Jordan Savile for recording and editing the podcast and also doing the cover images you've heard. He, he does everything. Um, if you want to listen to Newsweek's Foreign Service, you can catch us every week on Acast, SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, in between, you can go to newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Thanks very much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 